Hello, I'm Katie Piper, and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. I'm joined today by a man who's overcome some of the biggest challenges that life can throw at you. He's served in the Special Forces for 20 years, going through many traumatic experiences, but also living for the work he did. After two decades, he was told to leave the military services due to suffering from PTSD and depression. He's since become a world-renowned TV presenter and author, having presented SAS Who Dares Wins, amongst so much more. He's hugely successful, which is why I'm so excited to have pinned him down today. Um, He's here in the studio to tell his story in person. Welcome to the podcast, Jason Fox. Hello, thanks very much for having me in. Did you like that intro? Yeah, it was was quite dramatic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was quite dramatic. Very successful, well, we'll see. (laughs) You've got to live up to that now. (laughs) For me, the reason I was personally drawn to you is, you know, I've I've never been um, what you've been through, but I've been through a trauma and, you know, everybody's trauma is a different experience to them and it's it's, yeah. it's all kind of relative and you know I've been diagnosed with PTSD and had treatment for it and then lived a really um stable life and then I've had like relapses where it's come back and I've struggled with things so mm. I suppose I was quite interested to meet you as somebody that kind of has had that label attached to them so I should probably let you set the scene and and tell us your story okay so um yeah I joined the marines when I was 16 uh, I grew up in a place called Luton. Didn't do great at school. I wasn't really academic. I enjoyed more the sporty side of things and being outdoors. So, yeah, and I was getting into trouble and I, I sort of had the presence of mine. I don't know how, but I had the presence of mine when I was 16 to know that I needed to do something about that. And so with a little bit of influence from my family, having had a few members of them in the military, I decided to join the Marines. Oh, wow. That's quite hardcore, isn't it? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Now that's the deep, I, that's I, the I deep found, end. I found it really when I first I left and I thought I'd be all right. I was, I was greasy. I was in, you know, I was fit. I was a young lad, and I thought, oh, this be, you know, this will be easy. And it wasn't. I properly, properly struggled in the first sort of. At the time, it was thirty weeks training mm-hmm. for the first half of that. I, I genuinely just my head was up my ass. I had no idea what I was doing because I was sixteen mm-hmm. and you know, I'm expected to look after myself, yeah. iron wash. Oh, that was the struggle, the iron. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it wasn't. <laughs> all the fits, uh, the fitness side of things was fine. Yeah, um, it was hard, but it was it was all the stuff that you wouldn't expect to be hard that was hard. Where like, do you have to be at to pass the fitness test? What's the level of? Uh, it's on it's on another level. To be fair, I think they do when you when you finish they they say you're at the equivalent level or you should be at the equivalent level of a of an Olympic athlete. Right. Okay. Uh, or you do sessions, probably three or four training sessions a day, and each one is like an hour's block. Oh and then God, it's, you must have to eat so much. Yeah, you, 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 they actually schedule in four meals a day. So yeah. you have like breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they have another later dinner, and then you still go down the burger wagon and eat loads more. <laughs> then it's like, yeah, it's mental, yeah. And you still have a six-pack? Uh, yeah, you still manage to, yeah, somehow, I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I was like 16, I was like skinny and... Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I saw, you know, that was, you know, after a while I did grasp it. You know, that was a good thing about being young is I picked it up quickly because you you do as a youngster. You learn, yeah. Yeah. And then um, once I sort of picked it up, passed training, finished out, finished there and joined the Marines Mm -hmm. and spent the next nine years with them. And I really enjoyed being a soldier. 
You know, I like the challenges it presented. I like the opportunities it gave me because I wouldn't have had those opportunities anywhere else. And but I did get a little bit fed up with sort of a little bit of pomp and ceremony, a lot of bullshit. Right, well, uh, as there is in any industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I figured, you know, if I was going to remain in the military, I wanted to continue doing the soldiering side, but not the bits that I didn't like and that's why mm-hmm. I applied for the special forces and, and what about like your fear levels I mean I guess when we're young we're all quite fearless and naive in a sense yeah I, d- <clears throat> I don't remember I remember as a kid before I joined up having I remember my fear levels were terrible I used to be really fearful of stuff when I was young oh right okay I don't ever remember really I don't remember fear that much in the beginning part of my career mm-hmm. I don't know why I think maybe because you become a young Man, your bloody testosterone levels are going through the roof, so I think that pushes it away. The reason why there are so many mortality rates for young men are a lot, mm. you know, because you do go and do stupid things. Guys do stupid stuff, don't they, all the time. Is that the training, though, to make you fearless? And is and is that actually a possible thing, to no. be trained to be fearless? No, I think what they do is they train you to not be phased by your emotions. Is that is that possible, really? Yeah, I do it a lot now. I've become, everything that I've learned throughout my career and my life got me to a point now where I can I can spin my emotions into whatever I want them to be. So now I always try and spin them in a positive, even if mm. it's a, it would be seen as a negative emotion, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But is it a curse? No, not now. I No. Because we're, we're built to be in touch with our emotions. Yeah, but lots of people aren't, though. No, right, absolutely. You know, I still do a lot of stuff, on the, especially on the telly now, where I'm doing, I'm working on the top of high objects, whether it's on cliffs or whether I'm throwing myself off things. And I'm scared yeah. of heights. <laughs> but I still do it. And I suppose what I do is, I can before I do something, I can feel my hands getting clammy. And I'm right. like, I don't really want to talk to anyone because I just need to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And that's what I'm doing. And the fear's already set in. All I do is I acknowledge the fear. I'm like, oh, right, I'm scared. Why am I scared? Right, okay, it's because I'm uh, I'm up something high and, it, mm. you know, if I fall off, I could die or whatever. And so I basically use that and sort of, I, do, I consciously do it now and harness it into making me concentrate more on what I need to do and focus on the job at hand and not focus on why I'm scared. So you get the physical symptom, you yeah. acknowledge the physical symptom yeah. and then your all your thought process goes into how you're going to go to the next stage of whatever yeah. it is you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So basically survive. <laughs> and that, do you think that was your training then? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. through the training they, they drill into you what you need to do and what needs to be done and they ask you to do some really challenging things and because you've already got a little bit of drive in you, you do what you you learn about yourself as an individual. Yeah, you learn about how you deal with emotions, and you but learn and you sort of coach yourself into getting the job done, even though it might be scary. Does it make you eradicate failure? Has that become not an option? <clears throat> no, um, failure is you will always fail at something. Even in the Marines, they just they they just it's all about how you pick yourself back up, mm-hmm. and it's always like you know. You might fail at something. You not make, might not make times on one of the physical tests, and mm. it's about 
how you bounce back from that. And the people that don't grasp it don't end up moving forward. They, anyone could do it. Yeah. It's just whether they can grasp the fact that you're going to fail. And develop the resilience, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. The fa- a failure is just a building block to being a better, more rounded person of yourself because you'll, end a, you'll understand what your strengths and weaknesses are mm. and how you can play to them. So were you ever, were you okay with feeling weak? Was that something you were able to sit with comfortably? I can remember the first, (laughs) I can remember the first time where I struggled on a physical test. It was like a, I don't know why I remember this, but it was on a, um, it was on in training when I was 16 Mm. and you have to do like a 200 metre fireman's carry, carrying another guy with all your kit. Oh God, okay. You got like 90, it seems like a long time, but it's not, it's not actually that long. You got 90 seconds to do it. It's over a minute. That is long. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a long time, but when you're carrying your kit mm-hmm. and your other mate's kit and him, it it takes a long. It's, I think it's more. I don't know how far it is. It's a it's a bottom. There's a field on the base anyway. I remember I didn't make the time on the first time I did it, and I got I just got made to feel. Her, I was like some bloke was just you know one of the instructors was just hammering me for just being weak, and I was yeah. just like, I'm not weak. What? I'm not. You know, I'm not super super fit but I'm not weak and it mm. sort of did bother me but it was also the kick up the arse that I needed it was from then that I realised that you know you're not indestructible and you can fail at things but that doesn't mean it's all over it just means that you need to either work a bit harder or look at a way that you can achieve something in a different way so it's a good psychological technique then yeah yeah so I should just humiliate my kids if they're doing anything well wrong. I don't know about <laughs> I reckon <laughs> I reckon they might yeah the powers that be might disagree but perhaps mm. yeah so you said you went to the special forces for like layman's terms to the people that don't understand about the military what does that mean um the special there's two units within the British um military that are special forces units and they most people that join the military would probably, I would say most of them would would aspire to join those units. There's not many people in them, but they go out and do sneaky stuff around the world and they go and war fight and get up, you know, basically if you're a bad person, they that's who, we're, we're the people that come and Sounds tell, like tell fun, you off. Sounds fun slash horrific. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is fun slash horrific. Yeah. You have, you have a good time. I mean, it, like I said, it's a small group of people. There's a big, there's a huge bond with the people that you work with. Like a family, then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like you know, um, as an example, you know, it took. I, I went on selection when I was 25. You're young. Um, yeah, it's about the average age that is. Mm. So 25. I'd already done nine years in the military. Okay, so you were hardened, seasoned professional. Then. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but you, do, yeah, you do. I went on selection. You start, it's about six months long. You start, um, I started mine in January in Wales. And um, there was 350 people started. And mm-hmm. then, you know, fast forward six months and there was only, I think, eight of us left at the end. So it's Because people can't handle it. Yeah, it's, the, the attrition rate's massively high. You'll mm-hmm. lose a big chunk in the first phase. Second phase, you'll lose an even, uh, well, you lose a considerable amount more and then after the second and third phase, you're pretty much left with the core of people that will probably get to the end anyway. And is it like 50-50 mental and physical or what's the kind of ratio, would you say? I'd say it's 70-30 mental. Right, okay. That's interesting. You, do, you, need to be, you need to be physically robust, yes, but the biggest, the hardest thing on that course is your own head. Mm. Do you think it's good for humans to put themselves to that limit like that and that test? <clears throat> I do, yeah. I, believe, I think so. Other people mm. would disagree. but um, Do you find it thrilling? 
I find I, the build up to a challenge. Yes, I do. Selection itself is horrendously boring. Mm. It's not, you know, people because everyone's like, oh, you're joining the special forces. The course to join the special forces must be so cool and glamorous, and you yeah. go do go and do cool stuff. You don't spend a lot of time on your own running around hills trying to navigate, carrying heavy kit okay. in the in shit weather. But I can see where that would break some people, though. Yeah, people don't shout at you on on the on in the special forces mm. on the selection. You basically the first phase was four weeks in Wales in the winter. I think Wales would break me in the winter. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> I've got to be careful what I say. But... Just the bars in the evening might break me. <laughs> you're in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. You're in this lo- this big dormitory with a load of other blokes stinking. You got all your kit in there. All your kit's wet from the day before. You got to get up at like. So it's like it's you know half past four in the morning. You got to get up to get ready to go and walk over all the hills and that. But it's yeah. you know it's still dark outside. It's raining, but you don't. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. No one's shouting and screaming at you. Yeah. So you'll see people wake up in the morning and just sort of like it'll be in their beds. They'll look out the window and they're like, "Opt nah, out. I'm not doing this." And it's sort of like you've got to have the self discipline. So there's the strength of character. Yeah, and and you've got to want to do that job. I think the reason that the, the course is so miserable and depressing is because the the job itself isn't that glamorous it's a hard mm. job and you you've got to want to do it for the right reasons as one of the guys used to always say you know there's easier ways of impressing your girlfriend you know don't <laughs> you know but don't you think it's quite for me i find it quite exciting that when we get pushed to our limits whether they're highs or lows then you kind of know there's my bar there there that's where i'm at like this is what i can cope with this is what i can endure and mm. in a way that that for me is you know when women talk about confidence some people think it comes from what you can afford what you own or what you look like yeah. but if i get put in those situations i feel more confident yeah. about who i am and what i can what i'm capable of yeah yeah i think you, to fully push yourself as in not like you said it's not about those other things yeah. it, it's to actually fully understand what you are capable of yeah who you and, are and surprise yourself as well mm-hmm. and, and and the other thing is is to become a better person no, not a better person but a more rounded individual that understands themselves better well, that's where the confidence comes from yeah you have to take yourself out of your comfort zone you do and almost be slightly isolated like you said about mm. being in that dormitory and you know I think when you exceed your own expectations mm. out of a traditional comfort zone and all the luxuries then yeah yeah you know that's quite character building. Mm. So where did you where did you go? Where did you get posted to? Ooh, all over. Are you allowed to tell us? Mm, yeah, sort of. It's, it's it, they always get funny, but it's, it's. I mean, it doesn't take the brains of an archbishop to work out where we went fighting. So right. you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, all that sort of stuff. Wow. So I joined the special forces in basically just after the nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the first nine years of my career, I didn't actually see any combat mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't operational as they call it okay. I basically spent nine years travelling the world playing sport right getting pissed having a right <laughs> laugh sounds like university yeah, it, was all, it was nine <laughs> yeah. years of university and then obviously 9-11 happened and at that moment in time I was then applied to join the special forces which is a little bit more of a serious unit so to speak and because of that day the world just changed considerably and, and I yeah. then spent the next ten years War fighting, really, in Iraq or all over? Uh, mainly in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, I did. So yeah. it was, it, and I would, you would do go away and do six month tours at a time, and like, they, like literally almost back to back in them. I did a nine month tour once, which is quite long. But what were those tours like? Um, good. I mean, at the, you know, you're part of a you're part of an organisation. 
that has got a lot of kudos around it, especially within the military, especially within your head as well. Mm. And you do believe in the job that you're doing, you know, you know, because of what happened in 9-11 in 2001. I genuinely did believe in why I was in the military, to protect people and to yeah. protect people that I cared for back in the UK, you know, it's to protect our interests. And, you know, as the way I saw it was that Afghanistan as a country, as a piece of land, was being used by people that wanted to come over mm-hmm. to, to places like our homes and, you know... And and do horrible things. So, you know, mm. I genuinely did believe in being a part of countering that and that's why we went over there. So the tours for me were exciting. Uh, I felt like I had purpose and I had an identity and belonging with regard to unit and they were scary. You, mm. know, I've, you know, you lose mates and people with life-changing injuries. And Did you witness first-hand things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't see, like, on... You know, on some of those tours, you'd be you'd be in combat. Majority of it, you'd mm. sort of like bounce in and out of it. You're you're you become super hyper, like hyper vigilant, mm-hmm. like the whole time. Flight, yeah, you're it? constantly hyper vigilant, and I think it eventually, obviously, took my t- took its toll on me. You know, I've, I suppose you yeah, you do see tough, horrific things, and you're involved in those tough, horrific things as well. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't. You don't think it bothers you. It, I didn't think it bothered me, and then at the time, at the time, and then it, and then obviously, dependent on who you are as an individual, it does catch up with you. So, if you ever had downtime when you were out on tours, how would you dissect what had happened, and you know, how would you would you just go and like play cards, or would you actually say, "God, that happened um, today"? And you didn't really, no one really acknowledged stuff like that. You do, the, especially the British military, the lads, or the lasses as well. Now, a lot more prevalent now, but. They've got quite a dark sense of humour. So a lot of the processing is to not joke about stuff, but to just be a little more flippant with the actual actions, not with your, your emotions, mm. but... But that's British culture in yeah, general, it is, outside it is. of the we're, we're quite... We're dark. Dr- we're dark and dry, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. So I think that was one of the ways we did it. You, there wasn't a lot of downtime. You, you're, like, super busy. You're always, you know, especially in the Special Forces, you're... You're always looking to do the next thing and you're planning for it and you're putting in all the time and the preparation that's required to get it done and get mm. it done well. But there's not a lot of time. There is a little bit of time every now and again. You'll sit in a, you'll have, we had, you have like an accommodation block. It used to be tents in the early days, but then it, you know, there was a bit more infrastructure coming. You'd have an accommodation block, big corridor down the middle, bedrooms off of it. And then you'd have like a kitchen, you'd have a TV room, you used to sit in the TV room, big group of you taking the piss out of each other, you know, filling your time. So that was your therapy kind of? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot. I remember having a really, really good laugh in essentially what is a dark and dangerous place. But I remember, I've got fond memories of it, even though they're sprinkled in with, you know, moments of terror, but... It's like the unspoken word therapy where none of you acknowledge what happened that day, but mm. you all just have like light relief. And yeah, of... yeah. If someone dies or someone gets badly injured, then, you know, you give it the respect it deserves, yeah. but then you, you've got to move on. You can't dwell on it. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with a lot of guys and girls now who have been in the military and then leave. Then it catches up with them and they mm-hmm. start to, they reflect on things. Yeah. And they reflect on them in a negative way. I did that. And well, that's the thing. Like with PTSD, you don't. Maybe with depression, anxiety, you can sometimes sort of think. I think I'm getting a bit depressed here. But yeah. with post-traumatic stress, I don't know if you'd agree, but I don't feel like it's till somebody said to you, 
you know, this is this, that you actually are like, oh, right. And it, like you said, it's not like the day after. It can be months, years. Yeah. Like, I f- So, I mean, what? How, how would you say your PTSD manifested itself? In the early days, it was literally the classic stuff like flashbacks, panic attacks, smells, bangs, loud noises, men of certain appearance, that kind of stuff. Then I had a good run of treatment and sort of normal life. And then recently something changed in my life. And then I started to get sensations um, like the fight or flight flip in the stomach, acid reflux in my throat, just, you know, and all just that, that fit the physical for me. It's always, sometimes a few nightmares, but... Yeah, see, so the way I see it is I would suggest that you... It was a given that you you should you should actually have what they call PTSD mm. because you've never trained for what happened. Yeah, it's ne- you know it's like someone that's people get PTSD from car crashes because mm-hmm. it's horrendous. But you never even train for that. Mm. You know, you don't train to be in a car crash, mm. so it's never really in your mind for stuff something like that to happen. Whereas for me, I was in the military and I'd spent nine years. Although I said I was traveling the world pissing up, I spent nine years training to be a soldier. But can you really train for extreme trauma yeah, because, like that? Because you're you are even if you don't realise it, you're you're subconsciously conditioning your mind. Mm. You're you're training and you're doing stuff where you're like, at some point in my life, I am going to be involved in something pretty horrific. But and, a, wouldn't a, a therapist would say like it's natural that you're as your fight, fight or flight and the cortisol's releasing, mm. you're going to get more and more heightened, and, you, and you, no one can train you to not be so reactive and heightened and yeah. catastrophize and yeah, maybe. But I still think I, I conditioned myself. So when I ended up get, when I eventually went to war mm. and was involved in combat, you know, stuff was going on and stuff was happening, and you're like, you sort of. You were already immune to it. You're just yeah, me yeah, and, and you're like, neutral. Yeah, and you see stuff and you normalise everything in your head. You know, you're getting shot at. You've just seen someone get blown up, or whatever. And you're like, ah, okay, that's that's happened. Mm. He doesn't look very well. You know, blah blah blah. And you sort of just get on with it. And then obviously, I mean, for a long period of time, I used to, I was a big non-believer in PTSD and soldiers. I thought it was a load of crap. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've heard people talking about X, Y, and Z because mm. they'd been involved in stuff. And I'm like, well, I've. I've been involved in it, and I'm all right. And that's why you thought it was out of crap because you felt like, well, you haven't. That hasn't been your experience. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I was very narrow-minded in my approach, you know. But but then fast forward a few years, and I'm eating a massive slice of humble pie because you know I felt differently, and that's what it was for me. I didn't have it. Didn't manifest itself in the way that I would say was like like, like in the Hollywood sense. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, cars weren't backfiring, and I was diving into yeah, cover. That's the classic. That's it? the classic yeah. one. But for me. I just changed. I'd come back from one of my last tours, which was intense, like, like super intense. And where I, was it? What country? It's in Afghan. Right. But it was, you know, it was, it was my last tour, and, and there, a lot had happened. And people, you know, people I'd worked with died. There's people who were tetraplegics, all this sort of thing. And I came back from that. Got on with work. It didn't acknowledge anything. Just got on with it, and still sort of like muddled through. But at this stage, I'm a senior guy within a in a squadron, responsible for people and responsible for tasks and responsible for planning and stuff like that. And I was then getting ready to go out again on another tour. God, relentless. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's pretty relentless. And we were on into the build up of getting ready to fly and go away again for another six month period. And for the first time ever. 
that tour felt like a black cloud looming in the distance, and I was like, and you've not had that before. No, I was like, I did. I was like, fucking hell, I'm dreading, I'm dreading this next trip. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been like that. I'd always been super keen on wanting to get amongst stuff and loved what I did, loved the people I worked with. And then the next thing you know, I'm not looking forward to it. And that was that's how it manifested itself. Or my mood changed completely, and it was probably a mix of everything that had ever happened. Including my own life, you know, well, yeah, home life thing, is probably yeah. harder than war fighting, I'd say. Yeah, it's complex. And yeah, it's super complex and there was a lot going on and I just, I just became depressed, I think. Did you come from a tough background then? As in my home? Just in general, yeah. No. No. Well, my, my childhood was sweet, apart from... Be careful. Apart from growing up in Luton, <laughs> apart from growing up there, it was you know yeah. I, I went to a normal school. Yeah. I got bullied a bit, but nothing. You know, no different to textbook anyone else. Yeah, textbook. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. And but again, wasn't I wasn't the, the the you know I wasn't I didn't have a bad childhood. My parents were brilliant. They mm. were to get well. They stayed to get once all the kids, once all the all of us boys left, then they split up. But childhood was was great mm. i didn't have anything horrific go on then never really lost anyone close to me mm-hmm. uh, from an early age or anything it just sort of more of a mixture of the war fighting period and whilst that was going on i was married i had a kid yeah and, how do you keep that together well i didn't <laughs> well, well it'd be pretty hard to but it was yeah but you know my you know my daughter the, my daughter was born quite ill and there was a lot of pressure there and i saw that as I saw it as a hindrance and, and I was annoyed at, not annoyed at my missus at the time or my daughter, but just like, well, I've got a, I've got a career, I'm more mm. interested in what you're doing. And that's out of order. And no, but you're being what, trained to think like that. It's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. So then obviously when it does catch up with you when mm. I leave, you then feel guilty about that and you feel mm. bad about how you acted and reacted. And But it's, it's different because your mind's somewhere else because you're trained to be like that. It's a very confusing, it's one set of emotions for one part of your life mm. and a completely different approach to life in your career. I, could, I mean, you couldn't do that job if you were distracted by all the other noise. Mm, no, you couldn't because you'd, be, you'd have got killed. Yeah, it's I'm, you know, I can remember being, we were flying, so we were away, and we were flying into an operation that was mm. we knew was going to be pretty hardcore, as mm. in we were going to be fighting. We had to stop at uh, an airbase, refuel. One of the helicopters sort of broke at that point so they needed to try and fix it quickly and that's wow. because we had a bit of time we were like all right well, i thought i'll go and uh check my emails because you can on some of the bases they've got like welfare oh yeah places you can just log in check yeah. my emails and there was an email from i think my missus that wound me up so then i phoned her and we had a massive argument on the phone yeah because you're reactive next thing you know someone's like that right we're going and i'm like next thing you know i'm flying into a fire into a gunfight yeah and but I couldn't concentrate. I was, it was like, yeah. And then I needed to sort of like push it to one side. But it's, well, it's a perform. It's like if you were a singer and you were going to perform on stage, mm. you would have your earpods in. You wouldn't mm. go and have a distracting call because you need no. to put on a performance. Yeah, exactly. And which could ruin your career if you mm. didn't. And it, you know, it's kind of the same, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's exactly the same. Except I was, I was stupid enough to. <laughs> I know what I'll go well, and check was, my emails. You were human. Yeah, exactly. You were human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Curiosity, emotions, yeah. like yeah. The, you know. <sighs> So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally, I mean, look, we don't have the same life, but I can relate to so much of what you're saying. Mm. Um, when you started to dread this tour, did you kind of self-diagnose? Did you know? Did you go and see a therapist? Like, what happened next? 
I tried to ignore it. Then I remember we had a, a, a presentation a period of time before about what you should be looking for in your men. It was like a commander's course that I was on. Mm. You know, they're obviously talking to you about what you should look out for in the men that you lead. And I was like, hmm, I'm starting to tick some of these boxes. Like Describing me. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I was. I was laughing at the back yeah. of this thing. Like, oh, look, you know, anger, drinking too much, that sort of thing. Were you struggling with alcohol then? Not struggling, but I was not. No, no, not at all. Not. Not in an alcoholic way, but I was probably, I was medicating my mind with alcohol in the evenings. Yeah. Where if, if I wasn't working, then I'd probably, if I sat at home, my, by this time I was single and I was sat at home, I'd drink, I'd, you know, I'd drink a fair bit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. I think it's... I mean, I work a lot with other burn survivors through my charity. And for myself and other people I've met, it's such a common anesthetic, you know, just just a numb... Yeah, and it's socially acceptable. So, you know, you can, like you said, it's not like somebody who wakes up shaking and needs a drink, but Mm. you are numbing yourself in the evenings. And, like, for me, it got to the point where every night I would black out to go to sleep, Mm. but it was always in my house in private, so it's not like anyone else picked up on it. And then I'd just spend every morning hungover, eat some food and carry on. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I was doing. I mean, yeah, I've done it a fair bit this week, but that's because it's Christmas. Oh, we got an excuse. It's Jesus's birthday. Right? I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but but also, you think it's? I just used to. I lived in London. I was like, mm. most people were hungover every morning, so well, I just London, used to. I live in London. Yeah, just normal. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I know. I recognised that I was ticking some boxes, but I still didn't know what it was that was going on. And mm. actually, I was probably. In fact, not probably, I definitely was in denial and I was trying to push it to one side and not admit to myself that there was something going on. Why? Because I was embarrassed about it. 
because um, of the masculine culture you were in? Or? Um, yeah, not that it would have actually mattered in hindsight because it was more... I've said this a few times recently, you know, we, this talk about the, or the, the conversation about mental health that's being had throughout society is, is great. And it seems to have, you know, in, in, an, in an open forum, in a room full of people, the stigma is pretty much gone. It's going. Yeah. But the issue is the stigma is always in the individual's head. They are the one. I, I, was, I was like that. I'm weak, I'm embarrassed, I'm not supposed to be like this, I'm supposed to be this, you know, hardened sort of yeah. fighter. And So it's the shame, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I felt shameful about it. So when I eventually presented myself to someone with it, with this issue, and I thought as well that I would go and see the relevant professional, they'd have a toolbox of different therapies and management systems mm-hmm. that we could use depending on what worked. And I could keep it all under wraps and just keep it informal. And you're it used to working like that, yeah, methodical yeah, and yeah, an exactly. a solution. And, yeah, I was like, that's, yeah. that's, that's going to be something that fixes me. And <laughs> sort of went in and it didn't work like that. There wasn't a box of tricks. There was mm. just one course. It was just one size to fit all. And it just, I didn't engage with it very well. I was embarrassed. And then... It, and what was it like? Make you repeat all stuff and relive stuff? Yeah. And that, yeah, so, it's so, quite, quite tough. Yeah, and I didn't... I didn't necessarily need to do that, but yeah. not for me anyway. I was, you know, I think the first the first conversation that we had, it was okay. So, which what was a stressful what was this stressful incident that triggered this? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what what are you on about? They said, well, when did I says it is? I says you want me to reel off every situation I've ever. I says I can't even remember them. They've molded it. They've they've sort of like Memory morphed loss is into one. Of the one. Yeah, as well. I, I said they've morphed into one. You've been at war Memory. for nine years. Yeah, it was frustrating. Frustrating mm. for me because I was getting frustrated and frustrating for the other person because they could see that nothing was really happening with me. Mm-hmm. And it's I, not making it worse. And making it, like. it worse. And I was getting worse. And, you know, and then I got signed off work. Everything was official. I still lied to myself. I lied to people that asked me why I wasn't at work. I said, oh, it's because of my hearing. I've got tinnitus. So, yeah. Um, which is, you know, attributed to what we were doing. To get signed off work is quite a dark place when that is a job that really does define you. Oh, that yeah, it was that is that was the beginning of the end for me. You gave yourself to that job. Yeah, and then know. got signed off work on medication, and yeah, I just I lost myself, and then I got told right, you're getting medically discharged from the military. So um, and I remember them saying, "What will fix you is to leave the military." So. You will leave on the fifth of April, two thousand and twelve, and I was like, "Okay, cool." Is this face to face or a phone call? Or? No, no. This is you have a, like a, this, it's a, it's like you're a, you go into a, a naval medical board mm-hmm. in a big building with paintings on the walls, really formal. Yeah, big oak table with a yeah, you know, with a board of physicians on the other side, and they talk to you like they know you, and you're like, so impersonal. Yeah, and then they're like, "Okay, right, so." You will leave the military on the fifth of April, two thousand twelve, and that is that's the beginning of your journey to fit. You you will fix yourself. That's what that's what you need. And so when you wake up on the sixth of April, two thousand twelve, you're like, ah, no, I, I feel the same. Of <laughs> In course. fact, I feel worse. What I an ain't got a job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, did you feel discarded? Did you feel used? Not used. I felt a bit. I was annoyed that there wasn't that they didn't have anything else in place that we could have tried. You know, we tried one thing. And it didn't work, and I was like, "Surely there's more." Anyway, yeah, that was that was the end of 
end of the military career. Yeah, and it was a, it was like over a decade of your life as a young man. Mm. So where did you go from there? Here you are, discharged, medically discharged. Yeah, with PTSD, depression. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was down as PTSD, depression, and chronic burnout, whatever that means. Right. So what does a guy like you do? All the, all all you know, your CV, all your experience, everything you've ever known lies within that. Um, I went and looked at a few jobs. <laughs> My CV was funny because I basically didn't know how to write it. So I was like. Just write it down, and for, I went for one job in in the city actually, and I got I got turned away because I didn't know how to interview. Along with my CV was written by a five year old. It's horrendous. And then I eventually met someone who was he was brilliant. He's still a really really good friend, and he ran a company. Mm. And he looked at my CV, and he's like, he goes, right, he goes, I'm going to give you a job, and he says, it's not the job for you, but just take it for what it is. He says, you need to start, you know. This is a journey for you. For your CV. He yeah. says, however, I'm going to take your CV away and get it rewritten. He says, this is terrible. And he was like, joined the Marines at 16 and I went to war and that was it. It wasn't like that. There was a bit more to it than <laughs> Sounds that. Sounds like a good opener to a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> So he was kind enough to go and do that. And then he gave me a job as a projects manager for a facilities management company. And it was, it was great. I learned a lot about stuff I wasn't really interested in, but stuff mm. that was important. And structure in your life, a reason yeah, to yeah, shower, gave, a reason yeah, not to drink. Exactly, exactly. It was it was a it was a good thing, but it just didn't didn't float my boat. And I ended up I got into a little bit of trouble, but I ended up um, deciding I was going to leave. So I went to the guy that gave me the job. He was the MD. Mm. I mean, it was a huge company. It's one of the biggest employers in the world. And I went to him and I said, mate, I, I just can't do this anymore. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to resign. And he was like, and he was, he's amazing. He just turned around and he said, don't resign. He goes, I'll make you redundant. So, and he didn't have to do that. And, and I wasn't actually in a position to be made redundant mm. because I hadn't been there long enough. I'd been there just under eight, I think 18 months. What a decent guy. Oh, he's awesome. So he I just got, genuinely wanted the best for you. Yes. Yeah. But before that, that point when I was about to leave, it was one time when he turned around to me and he was like, we were sat down, we were at a conference type thing. We went and had breakfast together. We caught up every now and again and he said, mate, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, look, he goes, I know you're not quite finished with all that's gone on. He says, are you seeing anyone? I was like, no, no, I saw people when I was in the military. And he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to load you onto my my package and we're, you, you, the health package that comes oh, yeah, with the yeah. business. And he says, we're going to find you someone. He says, it doesn't matter how long it takes or how many people you see before you find the right one, but the, you're going to keep going. So These kind of people really restore your faith in society. I know, society, yeah, I know. I know. And um, so that's that's what happened. I ended up meeting this uh, lady called Alex. She's a psychotherapist, a uh, clinical psychotherapist, and she was awesome. She helped me realise what I needed to do. Because before then, I mean, at one point I was, you know, I stood on top of a cliff about to, you know, contemplating suicide in a bad way. It, it got to that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because I'd lost, I felt I'd lost my identity and my belonging and I felt I was failing at everything. Understandably, like my, yeah. My relationship was not good and, I, you know, just nothing was going right. And I was like, maybe I've had the best years of my life. Maybe my purpose has now been taken away, probably rightly, but it's gone. And now I don't think I've got a place on... Yeah, on, yeah. On the planet, so because sometimes when you're low, you can get to the point where you think, "Well, if this is yeah, it, yeah. I want out." Yeah, and I totally, you know, I do understand it in people. It's sad, but basically, fortunately, 
When I stood, I'm scared of heights anyway. Nice. So yeah, this is all quite ironic, isn't it? Now you're on telly doing this. But as I sort of like, I just it's, things are really bad. But you either jump or you do something about it, mm. and you need to really, really, really properly want to do something about it. Which was basically me telling myself. If you turn around and walk away from this cliff, you have to be honest with yourself. Because mm-hmm. I still wasn't being honest with myself. That's yeah. why none of the stuff worked in the past. It's because I was trying to just push it away. Well, it's the old training, isn't it? Or switching yeah, off. yeah, just switching off. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, sometimes you can't switch off to things. and Well, you just delay. Mm. Yeah. And then obviously I've, I met up with, you know, met this girl. And um, yeah, she was brilliant. This and is Alex, the therapist. Alex, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she sort of set me back on track and re-reminded me of how I used to think. So do you believe that you can be free of PTSD completely after like everything you've seen and been through? I think, in my opinion, indivi- it depends on the individual, but yeah. yeah. So are you 100% free? Of- yeah. Are you? Yeah. I'm I- so jealous. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, I no, should be happy for you. No, that was a horrible no, ending, wasn't it? No, what no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, it's... Um, so you don't get, like, any... No. Flashback, fight or flight, any trip, no. like, catastrophize. You don't... No, well, the thing is, so first of all, I am not changing anything that has ever happened. Mm. It's done. Mm. And and that's that's it. Um, secondly, if I did feel a certain way about something, as in, you know, if I get upset at something, I just, I look at that and I'm like, well, I'm allowed to do that because it's, it's a natural reaction for, for something to happen, you know. Because it's happening to me internally, mm. um, it's allowed. It's not. It's not not normal. It's normal. So you can you can separate logic from emotion in the brain. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm like, well, I'm just I'm just doing something because, or I'm feeling a certain way because something happened. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. But then the other thing, and this is all down to a lot down to Alex. Is I then started to remember how I used to think and I started to not worry about things that hadn't happened, like the future. You know, people yeah, get anxiety, anxiety about the future. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while and it took a lot of perseverance, but I had to keep being positive, positive, positive and surround myself with people that I liked and got on with. And eventually I sort of, I think my mind turned into a lot more, a lot more of a positive one, where I was just basically not, being phased by the past but acknowledging it and using it as a building block to become a more rounded person spending more time in the moment living in the now mm-hmm. because that's the most important thing so powerful yeah and then not worrying about things that haven't happened because they haven't happened um, would you get triggered by things that do happen i try not to read too much because when i do i catastrophize and say people are dangerous people are evil and then I'm like oh and you know and that scares me so I, I don't I delete all the news apps I don't have them on my phone <laughs> like how do you get triggered by terrorism no I just I know who I am now I am who I am and I basically will not worry about stuff that hasn't happened mm. I'll I'll sort of it's it's like the way I explain it is, is like, why are you worried about something that hasn't happened? It's ridiculous. It's not happened. And then by the time it has happened, it's too late to worry about it. You just got to get deal mm. with it in a, 
it is the way that you get taught to deal with things in the special forces, if I'm honest. Someone said to me, it was like a saying, I'm not going to get it right, but it was something like all the stuff you're worrying about happening never happens to you. Yeah. And all the stuff that does happen to you that's bad is the stuff you never f- could foresee. And you were over there worrying about the yeah, stuff that yeah. didn't happen while all this stuff was playing out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, when I look back on my life, I think, yeah, all the crap that's happened to me, I never was stressing about. It was all yeah. the stuff that never actually <laughs> pulled off, you know. It's but like, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like it, you could spend, or, and people do spend their lives worrying about stuff. That, and it's exhausting. And, and, and it is exhausting. Yeah. And it's like it's wasted energy. It and really is. Still get worried about stuff and still, you know. I wait. A level of worry is, is, not, is yeah, responsible. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you're Old. grown up. Yeah. It? <laughs> but um, don't ignore your emotions, ignore them, give them the respect they deserve because you're feeling like it for a reason. Mm. So it's really so much to, I mean, I could talk to you forever. Yeah. You've written a book, haven't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. What's yeah. your book called? It's called Battle Scars. Oh, okay. I like that title. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So we can read that to find out. You can, yeah. More. It's, um, I got asked to write it and they, I was like, I'm not writing a fucking book. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I just. Rather go to war. Yeah. You know, the guy that actually did all the, the hard work, the mm. writing, He's like, mate, you've got to write. We became, we we were mates then, and we've become even better mates. And I was okay. like, look, I said, if I'm going to write a book, I don't want it to be your standard guns and ammo and yeah, yeah, I'm hard. Look at me. I just said I wanted it to be a true account of my journey with mental health. You know, you sit here today, and now you know you're a celebrity. When I, you know, and I told, well, you are. When I told people mm. today, I was working with that. I had you on the podcast. You're like, oh, it's brilliant. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. I love hearing you <laughs> so. Amazing. And they're not just men; they're women as well that admire you. And mm-hmm. and that's what you do for a living now. You know, you're a TV presenter. You're a writer. Yeah, life is very different. It is. Yeah, it is completely different. <laughs> I don't know how it. Well, I do know how it happened, but yeah. How did it happen? So I finished that job. The one with the nice man, yeah. who I'm still friends with. Hello, Andy. I was—I I just didn't know what I was doing, and I ended up going into security because that's what you do. You yeah, know, lots of ex-military do, body, don't they? Bodyguard inside of things. It is not glamorous like TV shows depict. It's, yeah, it's not like that at all. It's very—it's freelance. It's hard work. It is—it has no security. Bizarrely, security has no security. Mm-hmm. You, the industry is very edgy with regard to whether you're going to get work or contracts, that sort of thing. Mm. And I picked up a really good contract, actually, and then the price of oil crashed mm-hmm. and the, the, that my, my job disappeared. And I was like, oh, my God, I am now, like, literally, I had nothing. Back to square one. Yeah, yeah. I was, like, scared. I couldn't pay anything. I was, like, really, really, really in a bad place. And my only saving grace was I had that redundancy package. It was, I was, mm-hmm. it was, that was disappearing at a rapid rate. Mm-hmm. Not because I was going out lauding it, but because life is... Oh, life cost. is expensive. Yeah. Just general life, yeah. And then a friend of mine, a good friend, he he was, he was worked in the TV world, mm-hmm. but did all the safety for different productions, you know, oh, whether right. it's yeah, rigging yeah. up ropes, looking after crews. Mm-hmm. And he said, mate, I've got loads of work coming. He says, I'm, is there any chance you can cover for me on this job in Madagascar? And I was like, yeah, mate, whatever, what do I need to do? He says, will you just be the team's medic? Sort of keep an eye on them, but also they need you to be the underwater cameraman's dive buddy. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. cool. So... I went out there. We were living on a desert island in a five-star resort, diving. It was, it That's was nothing for you. Uh, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it's like heaven. Yeah. So I'm there with this guy, and he's filming stuff, and all I'm doing is like checking his air. Like, yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, good. Okay, let's go. You know, that's all chilled it was. Yeah, it's chilled. But what did happen was when that job finished, everyone bomb burst, goes into other career, uh, mm. other productions, other companies. Mm-hmm. Someone from that one was in a meeting about. No one knew what it was going to be called, but what is now SAS, who does wins mm-hmm. about the, the sort of development meeting for that. Mm-hmm. 
And Channel 4 basically said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll fund it, we'll, we'll give it a budget, commission it. But where the hell are you going to find these ex-Special Forces guys? And this guy was like, well, you should try try this guy. I've just been out in Madagascar with him. So I got a phone call saying, do you want to be on telly? And I was like, yeah. Wow, that's cool, isn't it? So yeah. do you think that's the right place, right time? Do yeah. you think it's God? Do you think it's destiny? What's your kind of belief? I think it's a bit of a mix, right place, right time. And I'd already changed my mindset to be a very positive one. Yeah. I wanted to be a decent person, a decent person to be around, and I wanted to be around decent people. And I think all those things linked together, things, I don't know, just found me. So I'm you attract bit, it? Yeah, I think so. I know it sounds a bit like, it sounds a bit a bit sort of wizardry mumbo jumbo, but I do genuinely think, you know, the laws of nature, if you put out a vibe, then stuff happens. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, a, yeah, a little bit to do with fate, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. A I've combination not really of... looked at it too deeply well it's kind of like if you changed your outlook and the way you conducted yourself and then things started to change for you you can't really argue with no no that, exactly yeah yeah no i went from i went from being in quite a negative space in my head where nothing was really going right to then having the presence of mind to change that and then everything started to go well and you're like all oh, right okay so might do more of that then. yeah <laughs> yeah i'll be a bit more happier <laughs> so one final question i want to ask you mm. um You've lived this amazing life and I suppose the life you live now is amazing. You know, lots of people in the public would aspire to do all the stuff you do. Do you ever miss the old life? Because there's a lot of extreme excitement and highs and, you know, being in the public eye is exciting too in different ways. I used to. When I first left, I really missed it. Mm. And I was I was pretty annoyed at the fact that it had to, to end early. In hindsight, it was probably the best thing, mm. but... I don't miss it now. Like, are you know, ever on the set of a Channel 4 show wishing something would go disastrously wrong because mm. you just need that high? It normally does. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But, you know, like, you're never seeking that. I I was missing something mm. when I first left and I thought it was war fighting, mm. basically. But it wasn't. I mean, why do people miss war? It's not the war that they miss. It's the bond the, the identity you have in a group of people and the love and the trust that you have in those people. Yes. Yeah. That's what you miss. Right. I, it was during the filming of the first SAS, I was being interviewed by one of the directors and we got on quite well. And the interviews weren't interviews, they're just chats. Mm. It's when mm. we talk to camera. Mm-hmm. And he basically said at the end, it was the last interview I did, so we'd filmed, it was the last interview, we were still on location and he said, what is it that you're looking for? And I was like, okay. I said, fucking hell, I've just suddenly realised. I says, this is what I'm looking for. And he said, what do you mean? I says, you're not going to like this. I says, because you'll see yourselves as complete polar opposites. But the TV world, the one that I've been involved in anyway, is ex- almost, ex- you're exactly the same as the people that I worked with in the Special Forces. And he was like, no, I'm not, you know, because he, you know, he's quite he's quite liberal in his way of thinking. He thinks mm. that all soldiers are bloody right-wing lunatics. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, I says, ignore all that that noise. I says, fundamentally, I've just found another group of people that operate in the same way that I did back there. Mm. I says, you, you guys, you all want to be busy. You've got a pride in what you do, perfectionisms. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be perfectionists. You have to have lots of things going on, otherwise you get bored in mm. your mind. You you know, you work hard, but you also let your hair down, you play hard. Mm. I says it's exactly the same. And that's what I was missing, that fundamental way of people are as individuals. And belonging. And the belonging, and yeah. there's a sense of belonging there as well. So, no, I don't miss my old job. 
I look back on it with fond memories and just know that I'm on a journey where time doesn't stop. So, What a great final thing to close the podcast because your advice really is around belonging. Yeah. And then everything else will be. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, that's quite interesting, actually. But the one thing I will say is when people leave careers, jobs, whatever it is, they say, oh, I feel oh, I've lost my identity and I've lost my sense of belonging. The one f- you are your own identity and you belong mm. belong to yourself. So just build on that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing yeah. to take away from it. But thank you. Yeah, thanks so much <laughs> for sharing such a personal part of your life with us. I really appreciate it. No, no, thanks for having me yeah. in. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.